Well, dear friends, dear congregation, I ask you now to please turn your very prayerful attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. Having completed last week 1 Corinthians chapter 7, after a number of studies in that particular passage, we come to this chapter now dealing with a different subject. Just reflecting a little bit upon last week, just to round a few things up, and really the previous chapter does connect with this chapter, and I'll try to explain how and why. There is a connection. Paul is dealing with really one theme, and it's that theme that we are not our own. We were bought at a great price. In fact, he began to tell us that at the close of chapter 6, verse 20, for ye are bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. And he reminds us that truth again in chapter 7. And in chapter 7, remember, he was dealing with that specific question that they asked. We know they asked a question because he says, or various questions in this particular epistle, his answering questions, a delegation of men went to him to see him. We know he tells us this at the close of this epistle. Apollos is with him, and various questions were asked of the Apostle Paul concerning doctrinal matters, spiritual truths that they wanted to know and needed to know. And he says in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the things whereof ye wrote unto me. And that word there, concerning, we said it's that little Greek preposition, peri, and he uses a, the same word, but it's actually translated touching. In chapter 8, verse 1, now as touching, it's the same Greek word, peri, and we could say the two words, concerning or touching, really mean the same thing, don't they? Concerning, now, things offered to idols, meat offered to idols. Well, in chapter 7, he was dealing with the church's specific questions about marriage. And I'd like to emphasize once again all that we considered in chapter 7 about marriage is not all that the scriptures have to say about marriage. There's so much more that we can learn about marriage in scripture. But there were certain principles there that Paul was dealing with. Is it right to marry or not to marry? Which is best? Well, he answered that question in various ways. And particularly, the issue was, what has God called you to? And has he given you power to live as a married man or a single man? Both take power. Both take a special gifting and ability of God. And we must remember that Christian marriage, as well as Christian singleness, is very different to the world's idea of Christian marriage or even Christian singleness. We are to use our singleness if God has called us, like the Apostle Paul. Paul was given a particular gift to be single. That gift is to be used to the glory of God. We are to use our singleness if God has called us to be a virgin and to live a single life to the glory of God, to the expediency of the furtherance of the kingdom of Christ and for service for Christ. And even if we're married, we're to use our marriage 
not for ourselves, essentially. While there are many benefits, aren't there, in being married, many benefits in uh, having a spouse, comfort, uh, companionship. Of course, as I said, 1 Corinthians 7 doesn't deal with all the matters of marriage. But what Paul has been teaching us in chapter 7 is that everything that God has given us, whether it's a spouse or whether to be single, must be used for the glory of God. Now, some people really struggle with this, but it shouldn't be hard for us if we're a Christian. Because God has saved us to serve him. He's not saved us to serve ourselves, but he has saved us to serve him. And the question we should be asking is not what is permissible, but what is most expedient for my life so that I may glorify God? Has God gifted me to be single? Well, if he has, I better use my singleness for the glory of God. I must use it for God's service. I must remember that I was purchased, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ, to use my hands, my feet, my time, everything for the glory of God. My whole approach to everything in life is for the glory of God. This is why he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, at the close, he says, look at verse 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink or whatsoever ye do, whether it be marriage or anything, singleness, do all to the glory of God. Sola del gloria. And we are to live, as it were, quorum deo, always in the presence of God, with a conscious awareness that we are not our own, that we belong to the Lord, and moreover, that we are indwelt with the Spirit of God, and that we must never grieve the Holy Spirit. Sadly, the whole approach and thinking amongst even so many evangelicals today is, even when it comes to marriage, what's in it for me? That's their thinking. What's in it for me? What do I get out of it? Well, my friend, if that's what our thinking is, I wonder if that's all we're thinking and we're not thinking about God. I wonder if such a soul is even destined for heaven. Because you know when we get to heaven, according to the Lord Jesus, there'll be no marriage there. As I said, we will, we will love other people far better. And we'll be perfect. We'll be just like him. Uh, we can't even imagine what it's going to be like. But I, can, I know this. and We must never let our imaginations run wild. We know it's going to be far better than we could ever imagine or think. So don't worry about that. It's, Paul says it's not permissible to speak about that glimpse of the third heaven that he had. Uh, our minds just couldn't contain it. But we have to believe that what God has even meant for us in this life is for our good. And the godly marriage or the godly singleness is far better than the world's kind of marriage or the world's kind of singleness. And I'm sure those of us who are saved would give their hearty amen to that. Now, unless you see, you grasp that mindset as a Christian, you will never properly grasp what the Apostle Paul is going to say here in chapter 8. We are not our own. Paul will go on to teach about those great objective principles that we began to 
to look at, and that principle follows from, remember what we began to see in chapter 6, verse 12. Remember what he said, just look back there, all things are lawful unto me, but all things are not expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Remember the two principles there. Number one, everything that is truly permissible or lawful is good and lawful for me to do. Obviously there he's not speaking about the ridiculously things that the law of God commands that we don't do. But the things that are lawful, they're lawful. But excess in things are wrong. And uh, just because something is right doesn't mean to say that is God's calling for us in a particular area. He says, all things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. So not everything is expedient. We said eating is perfectly lawful, but indulgence in food or indulgence in wine or drinking or indulgence in anything is idolatry. It's lawful to have a job. But what does Paul say? Covetousness is idolatry. If you have an inordinate affection for money, it's idolatry. Everything is lawful. It's lawful to have a house, lawful to have a cow, a house. But you know, opulence and excessiveness, that is not expedient. And that's not really permissible for a Christian. Why? Because we're, we're not our own. So the first principle there, expediency for God's glory. The second principle is avoiding coming under the power of something to become its servant or slave. Look what he says. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. We've said some things even legitimate. People can come under the power of it. And as we conjoin these ideas now, the whole principle continues. You come to chapter 8, we're going to be dealing with something. Is it lawful to eat meat, even offer to idols? This is the question we're going to ask. Well, Paul was asked of the church. He says now, as touching things offered unto idols, he's going to deal with this. But he wants to begin with the correct premise or principle of asking the question, what is the pre premise of somebody asking such a question? Why? So we read there. Now, as touching, again, it's that little Greek preposition, peri. This is something, obviously, they've written to him about things offered to idols. So Paul here addresses this subject, whether to eat food or not, offered to idols. He's not going to answer it straight away, but he wants us to think about certain things. The subject really is, is it okay to eat these things? Well, first of all, let's just establish a few facts. If you turn just to chapter 10, he makes very clear something. Chapter 10, verse 23, he answers the question, all things are lawful for me, but all things are not expedient. You see how he's using that word again in context now, as you'll see with things that we even eat. 
All things are lawful for me, but all things edify not. Not everything builds up. Let no man seek his own, but every man another's wealth or prosperity. It's not just, it's not talking about your financial prosperity, but somebody's well-being. Whatsoever is sold in the shambles, it's an old word used to describe the marketplace. The Greek word is the word makalon, which means marketplace. That eat. Whatever is sold in the marketplace, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any of them that believe not bid you to a feast. Now here's a different scenario. You're asked to go to a feast, and ye be disposed to go. Whatsoever is set before you, eat, asking no question for conscience sake. But if any man say unto you, notice, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, eat not for his sake. So you are perfectly okay to eat it. But if the man asks you and says, or says to you, this is offered in sacrifice unto idols, and the man is obviously, he's offended himself, and he's shown you, eat not for his sake that showed it, and for conscience sake, for the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Notice what he goes on to say, conscience I say, not thine own, but of the other. For why is my liberty judged of another man's conscience? For if I by grace be a partaker, why am I evil spoken of for that which I give thanks? Whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, do all to the glory of God. Now this man is pointed out that this thing is eaten, or has been, sorry, has been offered to an idol. He says, don't eat it. This man's pointed it out. For his sake, you don't eat it. But you are within your rights to eat it. So that's what Paul is teaching. And so we know, and we know from this chapter, Paul will tell us here that there is no such thing as another God. He tells us here, now as things touch things, touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth and then he goes on to say, If any man thinketh he knoweth anything, he knoweth nothing, get as he ought to know. But if any man love God, the same is known of him. As concerning, therefore, the eating of those things that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know, when he says we, he means Christians know, that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is none other God but one. But here we're speaking about, is it right to eat? And here he's going to speak about a weak brother in front of that person. Is that right? Well, the answer obviously is no, and he will deal with this. And the first thing we need to consider as we look at really verses 1 to 3 and make a statement here, the danger is this, where he says, Now as touching things offered unto idols, we know that we all have knowledge. And he makes a statement Knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. 
Knowledge can make a man very proud. He's saying we, we all have knowledge, but bare knowledge, and this is what he is saying, knowledge and a knowledge that doesn't humble us and a knowledge that doesn't cause us to think about others in the right way puffs up, makes us very proud. He says this, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. The idea is it builds somebody else up. True knowledge will make you proud and uh, even do things to the harm of other people. But charity or love, it builds up other people. It has the best intention of somebody else at mind. doesn't want to put down that person. It edifies, it builds that person up. And look what he says on the back statement of that. And if any man think that he knoweth anything, if you think you really, if you think you know, if you have knowledge, he knoweth nothing yet as he ought to know. All he has is a bare knowledge. That knowledge truly hasn't sunk in. And he goes on to qualify why he says that. But if any man love God, you see, a true knowledge will bring us to a love to God. And if there's a love to God, there will be a love to fellow men. Well, they're not. Because love is the moral essence and the directive of the law. To love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And he goes on to say, but if any man love God, the same is known of him. Now, if we love God... We also love the brethren. We're told that. Because that's all part of being saved, isn't it? We know that we've passed from death to life because we love the brethren. So to be taught of God also means that we will be humbled by God as we learn. And if we know anything, we know that we've been taught of God. When we're saved, we come to God knowing nothing. Confessing our ignorance without him. We don't know anything, in fact. And in fact, anything we know has come from God. He is the source of all that we know now in salvation. But you know, sometimes we can have what we call spiritual amnesia. We forget there was a time we didn't know anything. And we pretend as if we've known all along. We've had this knowledge. And by the way, he ought to know what I know. And if he doesn't know, well, that's his fault. Well, grace teaches a man. We weren't by nature dark, dead in trespasses in our sins. But God had to come and teach us. And that humbles us, doesn't it? It makes us think more patiently about other people. Hey, God hasn't taught him yet. God hasn't shown him yet. We realize, you see, everything we know as a Christian now is entirely a gift from God. Everything we know. We were once in darkness. Once we didn't know the true and the living God. But as we realize that, that it was him himself that re revealed everything to us, we are humbled and we love God in return. You see, that's what he's saying. If any man love God, the same is known of him. This man is truly somebody who loves God and he knows God and God knows him in an intimate way. That's what Paul is saying. 
And therefore he will be humbled in return, not only to God, but toward fellow men. You see, grace and understanding grace towards us humbles a man. We speak of the doctrines of grace, but we also speak of the grace of the doctrines, don't we? How they should humble us. If any man love God, the same, verse 3, is known of him. You see, God sees the proud afar off. Man that thinks he knows anything and actually he thinks other people should know doesn't really know grace. He's never really begun to understand grace. He might perceive it, but he forgets sometimes it's all of grace. As I said, we can suffer with spiritual amnesia and forget that what we know has been given to us. In fact, Paul tells this to the Corinthians. What if you have that you've not received? It's all of God, isn't it? Pride will be a terrible thing. And God sees, we're told, the proud are far off. And that's what bare knowledge does. That's how the Pharisees were. Doctrine that really hasn't reached the heart. And that is really so much what we need today. That's why it's important to immerse ourselves in the doctrines of grace. We can never be truly humbled. I don't think we'll be fully humbled in this life because we're so proud. And it seems sometimes the more we learn, the more we forget. It's all been taught of us, to us by God, by grace. Now, it is true and uh, coming back to the subject, we've just looked there in 1 Corinthians 10 about this eating food unto idols. It's perfectly permissible, but not in all situations. But there will be some, no doubt, who are always learning. And knowledge is a good thing, but never receiving really in the heart. 2 Timothy 3.5 Paul warns young Timothy about this. He says of them, having a form of godliness, but denying the power of, there's no change in the life. From such turn away. And then he says about these people, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, the truth should change you. It's just not coming to, to learn it, but it changes your life. So he says, ever learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. And then he says in the verse 9 of there, 2 Timothy 3, but they shall proceed no further, for their folly shall be manifest unto all men. Always learning, but never able really coming to a knowledge of the truth. So the truth should really change. It shouldn't just be a bare knowledge, but it should be a, a knowledge that brings us to love God and to thank Him and to be more humble and to love our brethren. Knowledge puffeth up, but charity, true love, edifies, builds up. If you've really learned, you realize God is going to use you as an instrument to build other people up. Real wisdom is so important, isn't it? And where there's wisdom, where there's knowledge, there's going to be wisdom. And where there's wisdom, there's going to be prudence. There's going to be discretion and discernment. In the life. We are our brother's keeper. And we are to act that way. 
We're not just given knowledge to say this is right, this is wrong. But how do you use that knowledge? We're told in Proverbs 8.12, I, wisdom, dwell with prudence. Yes, you've got to be wise, but you've got to be prudent, knowing when to use that wisdom. That's so important. Proverbs 2.10, we're told, When wisdom entereth into thine heart, and knowledge is pleasant to thy soul, discretion shall preserve thee. Now, the second thing I want you to notice that Paul outlines, not just bare knowledge, and we've got to be orthodox in, in things. We've got to know what is right and what is wrong. But here's the thing. Orthodoxy, of course, is essential, but is never to be ignored at the same time, at the expense of somebody not knowing the truth. Now, where he says here, as concerning, therefore, the eating of those things, verse 4, that are offered in sacrifice unto idols, we know, and here he's speaking about Christians, he's writing to Christians, that an idol is nothing in the world, and there is none other God but one. Now, what Paul is not saying here is, in order not to offend somebody, you know, you would be very wrong to say, oh, dear friend, yes, well, there might be another God, and well, we'll just pass this one over. You know, that's, that's not right. There's no negotiation with the truth. We all know, and you can rightly argue to your brother and say, there is no other, other God. And if this offends you, I won't partake of it. If he insists, and you must insist on the truth. We must always insist on the truth. We are never given license just because... Somebody thinks something is wrong to say, well, just because this meat is offered to an idol, we have to agree that there are other gods. Of course, that would be terrible. You're conceding to a lie. Churches do that today. Other religions call it religious tolerancy. The Bible does not speak of that. There is one God, and there's, there's no fudging on this issue. The Lord has said, has he not, in Isaiah 44, 6, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and the last. Beside me there is no God. We sometimes sing, don't we, in that Psalm 96, Sing unto the Lord a new song. Bless his name. Show forth his salvation. And then we sing... For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods, for all the gods of the nations are idols. But the Lord made the heavens. That's all they are. They're idols. They're objects that men have made. They can't speak. They can't smell. They can't tell you the future. We know that there is one God, and this is what Paul is saying. And then he moves on, verse 5. For though there be that they that are called gods, whether in heaven or in earth, as there be gods many, as men say they are, and lords many, but to us there is but one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we in him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, and we by him. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is included there in the Godhead, and that's only right. God is spirit, 
Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We have that lovely verse, don't we? 1 John 5, verse 7. There are three that bear record in heaven. The Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost. These three we read are one. One God, yet in three divine persons. So Paul is not saying here, negotiate with the truth. We know there's one God. And you'd be right to tell your weak brother this, to remind him. And it's important we stand for the truth. We wouldn't want him to fall in that, would we? Now there's something else. This young, weak believer, as we will read here, he is offended. He speaks later of the weaker brother. Verse 11, And through thy knowledge the weak brother perish. So he's a weak brother in the sense of his faith. He's not really come to grasp things. Now, here's the idea. He knows, and it's interesting, as you read on here, it says, if you notice, that, look at verse 7, how be it, there is not in every man that knowledge, for some with conscience of the idol. He doesn't say with conscience of the God, and that's quite striking. And Paul makes that distinction. This man is looking at, a, at an idol. He's seen the idol in the marketplace, perhaps, and he's seen the meat there. And he's thinking about that idol. And although he might even know that there is one God, yet he thinks of that idol. And so to eat that meat that was sacrificed to that little wooden statue, it's a great offense to him. And that's what he's saying. There is somehow still a stigma in this man's mind, in his psyche, that says, I don't feel comfortable with eating this meat offered to that little sacrifice, that idol. Not God, you know, it's verse 7. It says, unto this hour, eat it as a thing offered unto an idol. Even to this point, he's thinking, he's a believer, he's a brother. But in his psyche, he just can't. It's a great offense. I am not going to eat that meat offered to that little object. And he's greatly troubled. Although he doesn't even see it as a God, the whole idea is an abomination to him. And he'd be right, in a way, obviously. And it would be wrong to force him to take it, wouldn't it? If you just turn to Romans 14, let me show you there. And this is interesting, and Paul touches on this when he writes to the Romans, Romans 14, 22. And the whole idea here is days and meats. And we have to remember that this is now turned in this day when in Corinth and in Rome, a lot of this idolatry was still going on. It was very prevalent. And then in verse 22 here, after having spoken of how some regard one day and some don't, and you have to remember that many of the people there were, were Jews and they were leaving some of the old things of the Old Testament. And certain days were still somehow sacrosanct to them and special and sacred and they thought they were offending God if they, if they didn't keep those days. Now he gets on to speaking about meats in verse 22 of Romans 14. 
Hast thou faith? Have it to thyself before God. Happy is he that condemneth not himself in the thing which he alloweth. And he that doubteth is damned if he eat. You see? His faith won't let him eat it. Because he eateth not of faith. For whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Now notice, there were no chapter divisions in the original, chapter 15, verse 1. We then, so he's applying, that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to edification, to building up. For even, notice, Christ pleased not himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. There are many times when the Lord Jesus Christ could have stood up on his rights. The very Lord of glory. The one who created the heavens and the earth had men spit at him and mock him. Even he didn't please himself. He could have called down legions of angels. Yet he didn't please himself. He says, let this mind be in you to the Philippians. It was also in Christ Jesus. He did not even please himself. You see, you're not your own. What he came to do, he did for us. He who could have destroyed Jerusalem. We read his voice crying would not be heard in the streets, not shouting, not a brawler. Yes, he preached, but he was so gentle though. The smoking flax, he wouldn't quench. We're told there that his voice wouldn't be heard. Wouldn't be shouting, standing on his rights. He didn't even please himself. Same with us. Why? For the building up of God's people. Now there are those who insist, if you just turn with me to 1 Timothy 4, that you can't eat certain meats. And this is the opposite end of the spectrum. Those who, who teach asceticism. And this is the, we have to deal with this as well because here's the other side of the ditch, if you like. Those who teach asceticism as if this is a, a, a way in which you can get closer to God. If you abstain from certain things. First Timothy 4, 1. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils, speaking lies in hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with a hot iron. Now notice, forbidding to marry and commanding to abstain from meats. Well, we know that is wrong, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. But Paul says in the latter days there will come some forbidding to eat certain meats. Remember, sadly, growing up in the Roman Catholic realm, fish on Fridays. Can't eat this, you can't do this, you can't do that. What is that? That's asceticism. These things cannot bring us 
to a higher plane, a knowledge of God. That's, we're told abstinence from these things, deliberate, is wrong. But here, coming back to what we're saying here, is it right? Not in all circumstances. You may eat everything. Remember, Peter was given that vision. Remember there in Acts chapter 10, when he saw all those animals, and the Lord said, you may eat, Peter. But friends, remember, what are we dealing with here? Liberty. Freedom. But freedom not to destroy our brother or our sister in Christ. So thirdly, verse 8, the right application of knowledge. The right application of your knowledge as a Christian. Now notice very carefully, this is key. And Paul asks a very searching question. Well, it's an honest question. But meat commendeth us not to God. For neither if we eat are we the better, neither if we eat not are we the worse. It, he's asking a sort of, he's making a statement. Are you actually better for eating meat spiritually? Or if you don't eat the meat? No, it makes no difference. It doesn't change. But your whole approach to this is a searching one, isn't it? What is your attitude? Do you love God? Do you love your brother? This is why he says in 1 Corinthians 6.13, he says, meats for the belly and belly for the meats. That's, what it, that's all it's for. It doesn't change your spiritual walk. You know, everything is, is clean. But it's how you use your liberty. Are you thinking for the glory of God? Are you thinking for the benefit and the blessing of your brother? That's the real issue at hand, isn't it? Surely. Are you seeking to honor God? You're no better, he says in verse 8, for eating or not eating. Makes no difference. The real issue is how are you using your God-given Christian knowledge and liberty? We all have knowledge that an idol is nothing. We all have liberty. But how are you using both of those, knowledge and liberty? Well, let me say this. With knowledge comes responsibility. Doesn't it? Absolutely. You know certain things. You, you have a responsibility. You can either use knowledge to puff yourself up or to build somebody up. One or the, the other. Use it to edify your brother. This is why he says in verse 9, But take heed, lest by any means this liberty or freedom of yours, you are free to choose, become a stumbling block to them that are weak. Going back to the First Corinthians 10, you're in the marketplace, the man says, look, I see this is offered to idol. You see in your mind, he's troubled by this. You don't take it. Because he's troubled. You, you're going to cause him to be offended. So you've got to think. My liberty. My liberty has to do not only with things that are permissible, but is it expedient? It's like I could say, you know, uh, I'm at liberty to wear whatever color shirt I want tonight, or whatever color tie or suit. But I am not at liberty as a Christian to go against God's word or to offend you. Am I? 
Now, liberty, we can speak about it in many ways. We speak of the adiaphora, which are things that are indifferent to the law. The law of God commands us to do certain things, and we are not allowed to step outside of what God has clearly commanded. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. And by the way, there is a Sabbath. Hebrews 4 verse 9, there remaineth a Sabbath keeping for the Lord's people. Look at the margin. I know you all know it, but there may be those who need to be reminded of that. We are never at liberty to do certain things. We are never permitted to be immodest as Christians. As I've said, the Bible doesn't give us lengths of ladies' skirts, but we know when something's immodest, don't we? We know when something is inappropriate. We know when somebody has been rude, when somebody is rash. We are never given liberty to do as we please. And even coming back to this whole matter of meats, we are told, are we not, in First Thessalonians 5.22, abstain from all appearance of evil. We must never even give the impression that we're doing something wrong. You know, we've got to be very careful. So this whole matter here, liberty, is such an important issue, isn't it, today? But fourthly, I want you to notice, for if any man see thee, that's you, which hath knowledge or understanding, sit at meat in an idol's temple, shall not the conscience of him which is weak be emboldened to eat those things which are offered to idols? And through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died? You see, you are granted a tremendous responsibility. Here's an example of a Christian's liberty used to wound the conscience of a weak brother. Something God has given you for good, you can use for evil. It's quite striking, isn't it? You know, many things we can use for good. We know an idol is nothing. But you can actually use things that are even good to harm a brother. And that's not right. And Paul says, and through thy knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. Of course, he means here perish, he will suffer. Of course, the person won't fall away. But he'd be greatly hindered, won't he? Be greatly hurt. You imagine a man here, it says here, you walk into a, I don't know why you would do this anyway, but it's an example. For if every man see thee, which has knowledge, sit at meat in the idol's temple. Now, why would you go there? Maybe you're, you're starving. And you go in and you get something to eat. Avoid it, he says, at all possible. Avoid all appearance of evil. We have to be on the alert all the time. This is what he's saying. You have emboldened this man, he says, to take. Well, he sees you as a stronger brother. Maybe he looks up to you and he takes. But he takes without faith. Remember what we saw in Romans 14. Whatsoever is not of faith is sin. Used in that same context of eating meats. But he reminds us, I want you to notice, this is extremely striking, of even a greater offense 
than causing a brother to stumble. What is it? Verse 12, But when ye sin so against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, ye sin against Christ. It's terrible, isn't it? Paul moves on to say, Wherefore, in that case, if meat make my brother to offend, I will eat no flesh while the world standeth, lest I make my brother to offend. He says, if that's what it's going to do, I'll never eat meat again. That should be the spirit of every Christian, shouldn't it? Yeah, you can plug this principle in so many areas of your life, my friend. You think of it here, we're dealing with what we are at liberty to do. But what about things that we are not at liberty to do? And then we end up doing them. I, I, what I'm doing here is arguing from the lesser to the greater. The things that God has commanded you to do, and you don't do them. Or you do things that he has said you should never do this. And you go ahead and do that. Forget the Christian liberty for a moment. What he has commanded you, you are not at liberty to play with. Never. I'll close with this. The question really comes down to this. Do you love God? And do you love his people? 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed from death unto life, because we love the brethren. It's a sign that you are saved. I wish for you to turn with me to 1 John 5, 2. I want to show you something. And I'm going to argue here that the law is love. The law is love. Because we are told in Romans thirteen ten that love is the fulfilling of the law. And if you're going to argue with that, you better argue with the Bible, not me. Your contention is with God, not with me. Look at 1 John 5, 2. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. Do you read that? By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and keep his commandments. In other words, you cannot love God's Children, unless you keep God's commandments. You can't love his children. Don't say you love God's people if you are not obeying God. The law of God directs us in how we should love. It's not a nebulous, I love the brethren, you love the brethren only when you obey God. That's what the text is telling us. Only when you obey, you can't really love. How do you define love? Love is being directed by the law of God. Paul said in Romans 3, do we make void the law through the coming of faith? He said, God forbid. He says here, by this we know, 1 John 5, 2, that we love the children of God 
when we love God and keep his commandments. Full stop. For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not grievous. As I said, if we love our brethren, we should avoid all appearance of evil. And evil is when we don't walk in God's commandments. If I allow my brother to see me sin and disobey God's law and the things that he said, I'm not loving my brother. I'm not loving my sister. I'm not being their keeper. Never mind the issue here of liberty. The issue is love at the heart. We're not at liberty to just do our own thing. As I said, many have a sort of self-styled kind of Christian life and love for the brethren. They say they love the brethren. But the text says here, by this we know we love the children of God when we love God and we keep his commandments. It's very clear. And by the way, the word there for love is the word agape, which is that high form of love for God and his people. The commandments of God, let me say, friends, are what define and regulate what a true Christian really is. We know, as Paul says, we delight in the law, in the inward man, to do his will, and love, Romans 13.10, is fulfillment of the law. You see, by one's disobedience to the law, we are actually saying to others, what God has said doesn't really matter. And the way I live before you, and the way I conduct my life, doesn't really matter. But the way I show my love to you is by obeying God, by being a good example, by trying to help you, and you help me, so that we don't sin, that we walk in God's way. Now, just show you just as we close, one example of this. There was a time, and many are confused over this whole issue. Was it right? And you've got to remember the time that is written here, 1 Corinthians 8 and 1 Corinthians 10, is long after what we're going to turn to now in Acts 15. Acts 15, and perhaps you'll come across this at some point. There was a problem at Jerusalem. And you know, the Judaizers came from the north, telling everybody they're going to be circumcised and so on. And there was the council of the elders and Peter, James, and the disciples met and Paul was there and Barnabas. Acts 15, 22. And various things were decided. Now this decision was made for the good of the church. There was a problem going on at the time. And remember, 1 Corinthians hadn't been written by now. Acts 15, 22, Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Bersabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after the ma this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch, and Syria, and Sicilia. For as much as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying, 
ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you, with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice, we have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall also tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things. Now these were things, when he uses the word here, burden, these are not things, these are not mandated as such, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood and from things strangled. Now, we know it's very clear what the scriptures say. They never contradict one another. But there was a problem at Jerusalem. There was a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. And so men were throwing things in the pot. And uh, well, what's in there today? You've got this mixture of people. And some people just weren't wanting to take. And so this concession is made here. At this particular time, abstain from things. We know you, you can eat things offered, but for the sake of the brethren, for the sake of peace, abstain from these things. Now, obviously, some of these things you wouldn't want to eat, would you? From which, if you keep yourselves, you shall do well. This isn't a strong mandate, but this is for the sake of the peace, isn't it? For the brethren. And remember what Paul said in Romans 15. Look, even Christ didn't stand on his own rights. Even he didn't please himself. The things we could do, perfectly legitimate. But here's the thing. We have to think we're not our own. We were bought at a price. And we should never use our Christian liberty and freedom to the hurt of our brothers. And how much more, if God has commanded us to do things, we should never disobey them. Because that is not loving our brother, is it? Or our sister. What does he say? How do we know that we love God? If we keep his commandments, how do we know if we love the brethren? Well, John has to remind us, by this we know we love the children of God, when we love God and we keep his commandments. Amen.